commandment. We find that in Exodus 20, verse 4 to 6. That's the text of the sermon, Exodus 20, verse 4 to 6. We heard that from the Lord this morning. The words, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the water under the earth. You should not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, for the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. In connection with that, we'll then read from John 4. Read John 4 from verse 19 to 24. It's the history of Jesus meeting the woman of Samaria. And then we read from verse 19, where the Samaritan woman said to Christ, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And now we turn to Hebrews, Hebrews 12. We'll read from verse 18, Hebrews 12 from verse 18. We read God's word. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no, no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the grand general assembly and church of the false firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more 
I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And since we've summarised the scriptural doctrine of the second commandment in our confession, Lord's Day 35, we'll also read that passage, Lord's Day 35 in the Heidelberg Catechism, page 49. Lord's Day 35, the questions are asked and answered. What is God's will for us in the second commandment that we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word may we then not make any image at all God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way although creatures may be portrayed yet God forbids making or having such images if one's intention is to worship them or to serve God through them. But may not images be permitted in the churches as teaching aids for the unlearned? No. We shouldn't try to be wiser than God. He wants his people instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. Shall now pray for the opening of God's word. Father, we come before you as we prepare ourselves to listen to what you wish to say to us. Grant us all the appropriate listening attitude, reverence and awe, a receptive heart that seeks your glory. May our listening to you be a central part of our worship of you. Equip your servant to bring your word in spirit and in truth. Hear us and bless us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you experience the way we worship? Why do we worship the way we do? Relatives and Christian friends can sometimes challenge us. People can sometimes even ridicule the way we worship God. They feel it's too formal even boring and uncomfortable. Yes, there are churches who do think that do things quite differently, even to the extent of hiring a rock band to enliven the service. 
Why do we worship the way we do? Should we perhaps also do it differently? Should we too perhaps focus more on user-friendliness? On making people feel comfortable? Yes, how should we worship God? Well, brothers and sisters, this is the question the second, second commandment addresses. In the first commandment, the Lord said, you shall have no other gods before me. God forbids idolatry, serving other gods. In the second commandment, God says, you shall not make an image or a likeness of anything for the purpose of worshipping me. In other words, you shall not serve me via images. The second commandment therefore deals with the way God is to be worshipped. The Catechism correctly draws our attention to that when it says that we are not to worship God in any other way than he has commanded in his word. I preach you the gospel on the theme True worship of holy God. True worship of holy God. We'll look at four things. Firstly, the, the norm. Secondly, the seriousness. Thirdly, the basis. And fourthly, the goal of true worship. The norm, seriousness, basis and goal of true worship. Beloved, the Lord Jesus discussed the matter of true worship with the Samaritan woman at the well. In that conversation, he makes it clear that with his coming, the place of worship, Mount Zion or Mount Gerizim in Samaria, is no longer important. The important question is how true worship should be offered. We read in John 4, verse 23, 24, but an hour is coming, and now is, when a true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Worship that is acceptable to God must be offered in spirit and truth. But what does that mean? Worship in spirit means that it must come from the human spirit, the inner person, from your heart. It could also refer to the Holy Spirit. In that case, our human spirit must be led by the Spirit of God. Worship must be spiritual from the heart. That's what God is interested in. Not just lip service or formal worship. It's not just a matter of following certain patterns of worship or rituals. We need to worship God in spirit. And this shows that true worship also involves our inner being. It can't be just a matter of coldly going through the motions, merely an external matter. Beloved, the Apostle Paul, in Philippians 3, indicates how he once was, before his conversion, 
obsessed with external things, such as circumcision and ceremonies, rituals, rather than the more important issue of the state of his heart. His conversion on the Damascus Road changed all that. His eyes were opened to the glorious truth of justification by faith alone, through Christ alone. He learned that merely complying with religious rites is of no spiritual value whatsoever. In fact, Paul labelled those things as rubbish, or more literally, as dung. Philippians 3, verse 8. Brothers and sisters, what do you have in mind when you speak of worship? Often people have the external things in view. Liturgy, ceremony, music, and other formal things. And it's striking to see that the Roman Catholic Church in the last decades has had some attraction among evangelical Christians. You'd wonder why. Well, people consider the Roman Catholic liturgy to be more worshipful. Rome offers more formal rituals, candle burning, statues, kneeling, reciting, crossing oneself, and so on. But these things have nothing to do with genuine worship in spirit and truth. On the contrary, as human inventions, not biblical prescriptions, they're precisely the sort of things Paul labelled dung. History shows us that the tendency to add external rituals to the worship God prescribes is incredibly strong. Israel did it in the Old Testament, culminating in the religion of the Pharisees. Pagan religions consist of nothing but external carnal rituals. Such ceremonies are often beautiful and moving but that doesn't make it true worship. God condemns such human additions. In vain they worship me, Christ says, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15 verse 9. Let's be on our guard against that tendency. Don't assume that what has been traditionally offered to God in worship is automatically Acceptable to him. But brothers and sisters, does the rejection of pure formal worship and external worship then mean that it's only the attitude of the heart that counts? And that external deeds, ceremonies, have no value at all? Well, today, several Christians downplay or denounce external forms of of worship in favour of the believer's attitude. 
to attack and destroy cherished forms of worship is even considered a virtue today. They're considered purely traditional, outdated, a hindrance for real worship. People believe that as long as they are sincere in worship, God will be pleased with them. Regardless of the manner in which their worship takes place. But they forget that a person can be sincere and yet be wrong. A person can be sincerely wrong. God is not willing to trade outward conduct for the right attitude. He wants both. Outward ceremonies on their own without faith and love are useless. Yet at the same time the Lord is not happy with the neglect of biblical patterns of worship. God wants us to worship in spirit and truth. It's also in truth. That is in harmony with the truth of God's word. Sin continues to be a problem, even for believers. And therefore do not trust either your traditions or your instincts to lead you to proper worship. God desires worship in spirit and truth. Then surely all worshippers must look to the word of God to direct them in their worship. God's word is truth. And from that word of God we can learn what constitutes true worship. And that's why we have that so-called regulative principle of worship. According to that principle, God may not be worshipped in any other manner than he commanded in his word. In the application of that regulative principle, there are differences among Christians. Some, for example, use this principle to rule out the use of any musical instruments in worship. Whereas others have no problem with an organ or piano. Not all agree on every detail about how the principle is to be applied. We need to guard against big disputes on minor issues. An obsession with applying this principle down to the smallest detail can easily lead to a destructive form of legalism. Scripture doesn't explicitly prescribe every little detail. It's not without reason that the Westminster Confession distinguishes between what is expressly set down in Scripture and what by good and necessary consequence may be deducted from Scripture. The Westminster Confession also mentions that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be obeyed. And thus, beloved, despite the differences over minor details, we can be thankful for that regulative principle 
as we also have it formulated in the Heidelberg Catechism. We are not to worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Why can we be thankful for this? Because it's so easy to assume that our personal preferences or tastes are sufficient guide to knowing what pleases God in worship. Yet the word of God is the only norm for true worship. God wants to be worshipped in spirit and truth. His brothers and sisters, concern for the correct manner of worship is not unimportant. True worship is a serious thing. That's the second point. The seriousness of true worship. Those who offer worship contrary to scripture are playing with fire. At times, even literally. In Leviticus 10, we read of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange and unauthorized fire to the Lord. Let's turn that to passage, Leviticus 10, verse 1 to 3. Leviticus 10, from 1 to 3. And there we read, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honoured. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Notice that Nadab and Abihu were not offering worship to false gods, but to the Lord. And they were not private citizens. No, they were priests, sons of Aaron. We have no reason to suspect that they were insincere or had evil motives in what they did. They even come to the proper place, the sanctuary. But the sacrifices they brought were unauthorized. Something God had not commanded them. The Lord struck them down with fire because they failed to honor him. They failed to obey his commands concerning worship. In short, they worshiped God in a manner that God had not commanded. It was self-willed worship. They did it in their own way instead of in the way God authorised them to do it. And Nadab and Abihu are not alone. Generations later, Uzzah had a similar experience. 
despite all his good intentions. David was in the process of bringing the ark to Jerusalem when the incident happened. We read in 2 Samuel 6, verses 6 and 7, when they came to the threshing floor of Nagan, Uzzah reached out towards the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against him, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Why was Uzzah's act wrong? Was he not simply trying to keep the ark from falling and being damaged? What could be more sincere expression of devotion to God? But Uzzah was not a priest and thus was not permitted to touch the ark whatever his motives may have been. And when he did touch the ark, he died. Beloved, was God overreacting when he struck Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah? We may be inclined to think so. But that's because we are not as zealous for the holiness of God as he himself is. God is a holy God. Entering his holy presence is not a minor thing. Realize what you're doing. Realize how you worship your holy God. Do so as he instructed. God will not let his holiness be violated not even by members of the high priestly family or by leaders of the church. Nowadays, people often talk about wanting to feel comfortable in church. They prefer the kind of worship services that will make them feel good. But the comfort God offers is often not the same thing as feeling comfortable. True worship, according to scripture, is anything but comfortable. Think of what we read in Hebrews 12, especially verses 25, 28 and 29. I'll read that again. So Hebrews 12, read verse 25. Verse 25 it says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And then verse 28, 29, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Does that sound like a comfortable place? If we worship the Lord 
in the right manner, then our consciences will prick us. Then we'll be convicted of sin and we'll stand in holy awe of God. Then we'll humble ourselves in faith and repentance before him. And that leads us to the third point, the basis of true worship. How can we possibly enter the presence of holy God? Well, only through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. As sinners, we need cleansing. Without the forgiveness, we'd be unable to approach God. Jesus Christ has provided his blood to cleanse us. Our worship must accordingly have much to say about confessing our sin, repenting of it, and seeking God's pardon. Many consider this emphasis on sin too negative. People would rather emphasise the positive side of worship. Let the people know how glad the church is to have them present in worship. And by implication, how happy God is with them. Confronting people with sin and judgment, either in the sermon or elsewhere, is considered to be bad manners. This will turn people off. This will drive people away, we are told. Yet, brothers and sisters, God only welcomes sinners in his presence. If we nevertheless encourage people to approach him without a deep sense of guilt and a deep sense of the forgiveness through Christ, then we have not really done them a favour. How will we experience true peace with God? Only when the knowledge of our sinfulness humbles us more and more before God and causes us to embrace the cross of Christ with deeper confidence. This may seem paradoxical, but deep and lasting comfort does not come through minimising the problem of sin, but by confronting it in its depth. Then there will be an even deeper appreciation of what salvation in Christ is all about. Beloved, the heart of the worship service is that God himself comes to us with the message of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. God comes to sinners, speaks to sinners, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God comes with the proclamation of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. The initiative of God and speaking of God 
makes the Christian faith so unique. In pagan religions, the initiative has to come from the worshippers themselves. And their gods can't speak. The worshippers need to perform in order to win the favour of their gods. Think of the contest between Elijah and the Baal priests on Mount Carmel. You may remember the history. Those Baal priests, they shouted louder and louder and even slashed themselves with swords and spears in order to attract the attention of Baal. But did he listen? In modern, self-willed Christianity, we see something similar happening. And then it seems as though music has become the new sacrament. By intense and prolonged singing, people seek an experience of God. As if we can bring God into our presence via our human performances. And many consider that experience to be so important that they judge a church on the character and quality of its music. Music on its own may sometimes move us by its sheer beauty. But such an experience is not yet worship. Similarly, emotional story may touch us deeply. But unless the message it conveys is biblical truth, any emotions it may stir are of no use in true worship. Aroused emotions are not necessarily evidence that true worship is taking place. True worship is first of all listening to the word of God and then responding to it. Listening to holy God is in itself the greatest experience you can have. You don't need to do all sorts of things to bring God into your presence. You don't need to hype yourself up by emotional songs. No, God has chosen to come to you and to speak to you. What you need to do is listen and respond to him in faith and repentance. Thus the Bible reading and the preaching should remain the central element of the worship service. True worship can't do without it. Everything revolves around the ministry of the word, the ministry of reconciliation. Everything else in the service is either preparation for or response to the ministry of reconciliation. The basis of true worship awakens in us a childlike reverence and trust. God has reconciled me, a sinner, to himself through Christ. 
holy God is present. I don't have to struggle with the question, how can I establish a good relationship with God? God has already established a relationship with me in the covenant of grace. What I have to do is listen and believe. Worship then becomes a time of joyful celebration. Celebration of our liberation from sin. Celebration of God's relationship with us. He is our God. We are his people. And this brings us to the final point, the goal of true worship. If God is number one, and everything centres on his word, then it's obvious what the aim of worship is. It's not a matter of entertainment. Entertaining or being entertained. It is not a matter of satisfying the perceived needs of the worshippers. It's not a matter of getting people to feel good about themselves. It's a matter of serving God with reverence and awe. True worship is God-centered from beginning to end, not man-centered. God's call to worship is a call to glorify and praise him as our mighty creator and merciful redeemer. Psalm 95, the verses 6 and 7, formulate it so beautifully for us. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. When you worship God in such a way, then you will indeed enjoy the blessing he has promised in Scripture. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, what a miracle it is that we sinners may worship you. It's mind-boggling that you in your infinite glory would wish to have a covenant dialogue with us, sinful and mortal creatures. Yet that's the very thing you wish to do when you call us to worship. Thank you for your initiative to come to us and to speak to us. And that you do this on the basis of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Grant that we may all realise the seriousness of true worship. And that we then come to you with reverence and awe. And worship you in spirit and in truth. Yes, Father, free us from worship that might be centred around ourselves. Worship that is about feeling good and comfortable. 
Help us to remain focused on you and your glory. Thank you that you in this way also wish to give us the joy and blessing of your presence. Hear us in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.